listeners, welcome to episode six of season five of the Airways podcast. My name is Rohan Anand, joined by my regular colleague, Mene Baskara. Hey, Mene. Hey, Rohan. Really privileged to welcome a special guest today, Jay Shabbat, who works for Skift and also has a rich history of writing on airline aviation topics, as well as many other topics pertinent to the airline industry. And he is joining us today on this podcast. We're recording on Valentine's Day. So this is a, a nice little love letter uh, between all of us here who work in the broadcast component of the industry. Jay, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure. I enjoy your uh, your podcast and your, your work. So uh, yeah, ple- pleasure is all mine. And tell us about your background. I know that we have a lot of listeners who may have been following you from when you have reported not just for Skift, but for Airline Weekly, when you've also run your own podcast and also your books that you've written, not just one book. We've actually plugged your book into this podcast several times, the Delta Airlines Glory Lost and Found that you co-wrote with Seth Miller, uh, or sorry, Seth uh, Kaplan. Kaplan. But uh, yeah, uh, uh, tell, us, uh, tell us about you and, and your really fascinating and international background. Oh, thanks. Uh, sure. Well, uh, I guess we can start with uh, my first job in the airline industry was as an intern for the old U.S. Airways. I uh, I went to to school, undergraduate school in uh, at the George Washington University in Washington, and across the river in Virginia was where U.S. Airways was based, and I was lucky enough to have an internship there. Uh, and this was late 1990s, and they hired me, and I worked there for a couple of years in revenue management. And then I worked for a couple of years at Air France in the New York office. Uh, this was even before the Delta Alliance. They, well, they still, I guess at that time, there was already a partnership, but before the, before the KLM merger, and so, so it wasn't, wasn't quite what it was today. Uh, and so I did that for two years in pricing. Uh, then I went back to graduate school, and I started Airline Weekly um, after I graduated. Uh, and come, let's see, uh, just a couple months from now in June, uh, Airline Weekly will turn 20 years old. So wow, <laughs> congrats. it says a lot about my own age, but <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's been- it's, Or your legacy. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's. So yeah, and just um, to uh, add a little bit of detail. So in 2018, uh, my colleagues and I, Seth Kaplan, you mentioned, J- Jason Cottrell was, was my third, third partner um, in the Airline Weekly venture. We sold it to uh, Skift. And I continue to work for Skift today, uh, still writing for Airline Weekly. So that's a, a little bit about my my background. I uh, you mentioned um, I did uh, with Seth co-author a history of Delta Airlines. Um, it's been been a couple of years now, so uh, nothing uh, nothing in there about COVID or uh, maybe we need to do an update or or uh, <laughs> <laughs> right glory lost in. Found and lost again during COVID, and found again after COVID. <laughs> Might have to come up with a different title, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, that's um. So that's the history of Delta, uh, and uh, then I recently published. Uh, I briefly was writing um, for a couple of years. I wrote uh, a newsletter about the U.S. economy, uh, and um, some of the articles that I wrote, uh, I recently republished as a book. It's called American Places. And what it is, it takes a look at about 70 places across the U.S. and takes a close look at their, how their economies work at a very local level. You know, who, what are the big employers? What are the big industries? 
Um, why are some places wealthy? Why are some places, you know, have high levels of poverty? Uh, you know, some, some airlines are airlines. Yeah. I, I have a habit of saying that all the time. Some cities, uh, or even some, some of the places that I profile are very small towns. Some are even neighborhoods. Um, everything from, you know, a giant city like Los Angeles to a place like Lewiston, Maine, you know, what's, uh, what's going on in these places. And hopefully the idea is if you read, it's very easy read. Um, these are, you know, kind of short articles. Uh, hopefully the idea is if you read the book, you'll have a, just a much better picture, picture of how the U S economy as a whole functions and, you know, uh, a little bit about, you know, where it's been, where it's going. So those are, uh, my projects. And the only other thing I guess I would add to my little bio here is, um, that I am a certified IATA instructor. I haven't done too many classes. Well, I haven't really done any classes in several years, but for a while I was flying around everywhere and <laughs> they yeah. me all, all over the planet to, uh, teach courses on, uh, yeah, introduction to airline economics, things like, a, things like that. So I bet you know Geneva as well as Montreal pretty well. That's where a lot of the IATA uh, presence is, I think, in the Americas and Europe region, correct? Correct, correct. I have been to Geneva and Montreal many times, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that back in my Accenture days when I was working for one of the subsidiaries that has now been acquired by Amadeus, the level of engagement with IATA, which stands for International Air Transport Association, was big. And I think that around the time that I was there, the simplifying the business or STB as they called it, which was oriented around trying to find, you know, some good standardization in terms of customer centric uh, airline uh, service, as well as the new distribution capability, NDC, uh, that was coming out then. And, and the funny thing is, is that IOTA can do all of this incredible work in terms of try to prepare global airlines and oversight and what have you, but then the disruptors still come anyway in the form of COVID for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing about this industry. Unfortunately, the airline industry is, uh, you know, not only is it very labor intensive, it's very capital intensive, but it's also subject to, you know, anything, I always say anything that goes bad in, in the world, whether it's disease or war or natural disasters, or, you know, as you mentioned, COVID, that's uh, it's always going to affect the airlines in a big way. And so it's a very, very, very difficult business, fascinating business, but difficult. One thing I've mentioned on this podcast before is that if you look at the news articles, and I think that one mile at a time, Ben Schlappig on boarding area, shout out to Ben, uh, they do often is that they list the top 25 uh, longest routes in the world or something like that. So one of the things that I've noticed is that that happens to change a lot that list right because of the long routings that they have to take over different countries i was watching a video the other day about a binan bangladesh flight which isn't that long from london heathrow to Silet, and how they had to add an extra hour by going underneath arabia because the pakistan aviation uh airspace was closed right uh and taking this to your book that you just published there's real uh adjacency to the airline industry and writing about the economic situations and all of these 70 towns, as you mentioned. And I I do want to start actually with the very beginning of you working at US Airways. If we remember that US Airways was US Air and that US Air in the 1990s had its headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. And now there's no airline headquarters in Arlington, Virginia any longer. And at that point too, working in revenue management U.S. Airways had just become U.S. Airways for U.S. Air, 
it had now become an amalgamation of different airlines on the East Coast, like Allegheny Airlines, as well as Piedmont Airlines. And it was having to go up against uh, the bigger airlines and go transatlantic. And then not only did you do that in revenue management, but you also went to another carrier, Air France, to work in pricing, which, you know, orients around the JV. So we think about airlines in terms of like where their hubs are, where their headquarters are. But there really could be, when you work on the corporate side, a real disbursement of people working in different places. You could be a Delta employee working in LAX, yet you're also working with other SkyTeam partners. Similarly, you could be an American employee working in Miami doing the same thing with OneWorld. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And just to your, your point there about how... Uh, you know, it's it's obviously when I was writing the book about the economy, it wasn't uh, aviation related. But as you mentioned, there's there's uh, there the relationship is very close. I mean, the uh, there are so many economies that are very very dependent uh, on aviation and big airports. And you know, a great example of that would be uh, you know just I'm speaking here in the U.S. anyway would be like a like a Dallas or an Atlanta. I mean, just think about you know. A city like Atlanta, which is, I believe, the tenth largest metro area by population in the United States, but it has the busiest airport in the world. You can imagine how important that is to the local economy. And uh, so, yeah. And then, of course, you know, if you're a route planner, uh, you know, if you're someone who's working or even in, in any kind of marketing, if you're working for, uh, you know, particularly a big airline, you you've got to know your markets very well. And uh, the more you know about the economy of of these places. The uh, you know, the, it's the, the better the better it is because you can identify new market opportunities and you know I think I think it's very important and and I know Ron you were at one point uh, involved in, in in route planning you mentioned uh, very important to know which places are growing which economies are not growing uh, you know you think of a place like Austin which is the all star economy of the of the U S over the past couple of years just tremendous amount of economic and population growth. Airlines flooded in there, uh, perhaps maybe to a degree that was a little bit excessive because <laughs> I think there have been some some pullbacks. But uh, you know, and then you could take an opposite place, and you know, I don't know places in the Midwest or something. I, I don't want to pick on Cleveland, but yeah, I was about to say <laughs> ten years ago around this time they now announced they were dehubbing Cleveland, right? United, right? So some cities have lo- have lost hubs because they're. You know, there there have been different reasons. Uh, some some of it to do with airline consolidation, whatnot. But uh, but yeah, certainly Cleveland, even Memphis was another uh, city that lost a hub. Uh, Cincinnati, um, you know, these are places with um, you know that went through at least periods of time where there wasn't a whole lot of growth. And again, I yeah. want to emphasize that wasn't the only reason why they lost their hubs, but but a reason. So, so yeah. but it was a, it was a pretty common like there's a pretty common overlap, right? Where um, it's it's rare that an airline dehubs a market that is growing economically. Like Delta DFW is probably continental Denver. Like there's not that many examples you can think of where it's a growing market, a growing economy, and they're dehubbing. You know, an air, a, a major U.S. carrier is, is dehubbing that market. So totally. I, I think the overlap is pretty apt. Right. And when you when you said that, the first thing I thought about was the Delta situation when they left Dallas. Um, but that was a very you know special situation. They yeah, had the underdog there. Um, but yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Um, interestingly, at that time, you know, uh, when 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 Delta pulled out of Dallas, they actually, I can't say for sure they were losing money in Salt Lake City, but yeah, I don't think it was like a super you know like 
it was a great market. I think that's over time become a much better market because of the economic growth and population growth, you know, very, very right. fast growing place, you know, Utah in general, just, um, and the West even more generally has been, you know, a lot, a lot of growth there. So they, they've, you know, over time grown into that. And I do recall when I was growing up in Dallas and living in Dallas at the time, you know, the Delta D hubbing in DFW in 2005 was what led to Southwest wanting to repeal the right amendment and say, we should be able to not just cede this market all to American Airlines to fly outside of the state of Texas. You know, we should be able to fly nonstop from Dallas Love Field to all these different markets. And when we go to the conversation of a Continental and United at Denver, an American and United at Chicago, Delta and American at DFW, it brings up, and both of you may remember this from the 2000s, but after 9-11, the discussion of consolidation in the airline industry and also the poor financial health of all these airlines and where strategic deployment of assets would be able to bring in returns so that they would be able to compete effectively. And there was an article that came out, and I can't remember the author, but they described it as the S-curve. And that S-curve, they singled out Delta and American at DFW and United and American at O'Hare um, and how the dominant carrier even if it's just by you know a mere five to ten percentage points of market share, will be the one that ultimately commands the best pricing power, the best fares, the best loyalty, and it does come down to a gates and a market share thing. And a lot of people are talking about how one of the last remaining airports that has two of the big four competing with them is at Chicago O'Hare. And how American is not what it once was at O'Hare and United is, you know, really doing what they can to, to beef up that mid-continental hub strategy. So curious to know from either of you how that kind of plays in 20 years later now that we're in the mid-2020s and whether those economics are still at play today. Yeah, I, I could say a few things about that. So, uh yeah, and maybe we can talk a little bit about Chicago specifically. Now, of course, remember, Southwest is huge in Chicago as well. It just happened to be at a different airport down at Midway. Uh, so that's, you know, important to keep keep that in, in as context. Uh, right. I mean, American, I think you're right. United has always been the stronger player in Chicago. And American has, has struggled there. And if you look at Americans since the pandemic, so if you just go, Look at their schedules today versus where they were five years ago. Uh, they they've cut a lot in Chicago. They they cut a lot in Los Angeles too. They've cut a lot in Philadelphia too. They believe they've cut in New York. That, that maybe I haven't looked recently, but um, they have really decided to, you know, I don't want to say cut their losses, but at least restructure, downsize in places where they've historically had you know more difficulties. And sort of double down in the Dallas's, the Charlottes, the DCA's, the places where they've been historically strong. Uh, so yeah, I you know it's an interesting question. Does does American ever completely exit Chicago? It's hard to say. I mean, it's you know it's a valuable to have that mid continent hub and all the flows that go through it. And you know the danger when you pull out of a place like Chicago, well then you become even more you know less relevant to places elsewhere to, to, to your customers elsewhere in, in the, in the network. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, these are never easy decisions. I mean, even for Delta, which was 
back we're talking about, you know, in the early 2000s when they pulled Dallas, even even that was not a super easy decision. They were losing a ton of money there. But, you know, and also too, it's when an airline downsizes, remember that the economics of of the airline industry, you know, growth is very helpful for your unit cost. There's a lot of economies of scale in the airline industry. So when you grow, you actually, you can sort of, we say grow down your unit cost. You know, you think about if you have, think about just using a larger airplane. Well, you still just need two pilots. You pay two pilots, but now you get extra seats. So it's almost like those seats are for getting, I don't want to say free because you got to pay a little extra fuel, but almost free. Well, so now if you're downsizing your network, if you're pulling, you know, an entire hub down, well, you know, your your unit costs are going to go up. Your your unions are not going to like it. I mean, you know, nobody you're nobody that likes to work for a company that's you know cutting jobs or, or reducing in size. And uh, you know, your passengers also your customers, so your loyalty program gets less valuable. So very difficult to do something like that. So you know, we don't know. It's we don't know how much American is losing at Chicago, if in fact it's losing. I mean, nowadays, I think the industry is stabilized enough where, you know, hubs that may have were really, really bad in the past, maybe a little bit less bad right now. I mean, fuel is not too bad right now. So I don't, hard to say at this given moment what's going on, but, uh, but yeah, again, this is a long answer to your questions, but, but I think um, those, those are the kind of things that probably American would be thinking about. Yeah, and I had just eyeballed the data in Sirium, and it, it looks like American is about twenty <clears> percent <throat> smaller um, in twenty twenty four at at O'Hare than it was in in twenty nineteen. Um, and then if you were to compare that to United, United is about like ten, like like eight percent smaller, right? So, so I think both are down in, in Chicago, but United has captured relative share um, within Chicago. You know, I think on our last episode, I described American as building like the perfect airline for the American economy in 2035, right? Because like, you know, you look at those places, they're growing Phoenix, they're growing in Charlotte, they're growing in DFW. Those are those are the markets that you want to be in in 2035, probably, right? Like you, know, you can, there's no crystal balls. Um, I think your 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 book does actually a really good job describing where um, describing some of this, right, where there there are the ascendant sort of economies and markets and there are declining economies and markets. The, the, the challenge that I've always had with this is that when you're American, when you're Delta, when you're United, you need to be in a place that has lots of lots of affluent households and affluent consumers, right? Because you are a premium product, you have a premium cost structure, you need you know, um, affluent households to buy your tickets and more importantly, to sign up for your credit cards and you know, accrue your frequent flyer miles. Um, and you know Dallas is a good place to bet on that happening, right? In 2035, you you know you can squint and make an argument that the DFW metro area will be the second largest economy in the U.S. I'm not saying it will definitely happen, but like that's what the trend line says, right? Yeah, I think it's almost close to third already. Like it's, it's pretty close to third already, right? It, 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 and it should overtake Chicago at some point. It should definitely overtake LAX at some point, right? Um, if this current trends hold, but in 2024. You there's probably more total like revenue in Chicago than there is in Dallas, and then that's always the interesting trade off. But if but controlling, but to, to your point about there being interesting question here, if you're controlling you know 65% of the Dallas market, is that better than having 37% of the Chicago market? Who knows? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think you want to, and, and Dallas is even, I mean, Dallas is already a monster market. I mean, it's like you said, it's the fourth, the fourth largest metro in the United States. 
home to many, you know, Fortune 500 companies. There's, there's just a ton of wealth there. It's very, uh, you know, a lot, lot of immigrant populations. So there's a lot of international travel in and out. Um, so super, super market. And the fact that that American has such a strong position there is, is you can't, I mean, that's a jewel in their crown, right? You know, and you can maybe argue Charlotte is the other jeweler. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, I think Dallas is already there. Um, and then there's some other places, you know, Phoenix is an interesting, every market has their own characteristics. I mean, Phoenix, I, I know we, you don't want to bore everybody talking about every single American hub here, but I'll just say a couple of things about it. So Phoenix is, is, is less that way. I mean, Phoenix is growing super, super, super fast, but it doesn't have the corporate, it doesn't have the wealth. It doesn't have the, it's got a ton of leisure. In, during your peak season, you know, right now we're talking in February, Phoenix is an awesome market because it just every, you know, everybody wants to go get some sunshine. Uh, it's like, it's the Florida of the West, but it's, yeah, it just doesn't have that, you know, corporate. Now also Southwest happens to be, you know, very, very big in Phoenix. They're, they're big in Dallas too, but you know, a little more constrained there. Um, and, and Phoenix is, it, it is. It's you know. It's not Dallas in terms of size. I don't know what it is. It is getting more affluent though, right? Like my my, my parents sure. <clears throat> moved to Phoenix a, a, a couple of years ago. Um, I think it is getting sort of more affluent. And as the boomer generation in particular, um, and even as Gen X especially starts to get into that retirement age cohort, where whether it's a full I'm going to move to Phoenix or it's a sno- sort of snowbird split year kind of approach. Um, I do think Phoenix is, is a market that's getting more affluent um, as well. No, certainly not to the same degree as DFW. DFW. DFW is a freight trade, right? Like for crying out loud, I, I live here. Yeah. Uh, but DFW, but, I like to say DFW is today's Chicago. If you read the history books, what Chicago was in the 1870s, 1880s, you know, that that mid-continent, you know, massive dynamic economic engine, that's Dallas today. You know, it's true. Oh, 100%. That, that's actually yeah. a great analogy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what, um, and it's yeah, just the Chicago is very dependent on East West Transit. Uh, there you go, Dallas. I mean, you know, it's now look at the airport, look at the, the railroads are really important. It's a big trucking place. Just great. Super, super amazingly good geography. I mean, right. in The, the diversity, like the level of international connectivity that DFW has compared to even just 10 years ago. It's incredible to me. And the diversity that does exist in Dallas that is growing. And the fact that People are just moving to Dallas from global places. People are moving to Dallas from the East Coast, from the Midwest, from the West Coast, mountain ranges. Probably wish they could find a little bit more scenery in Dallas, but you know the city's working on it and trying to create trails and parks. And in the vein of describing it as so large and comparing it to LA Basin, Bay Area, New York area, where there's not just one mega airport and one secondary airport. There's several secondary airports. But Chicago has never been able to take off with uh, O'Hare, Midway, and Gary, for example. You might argue that Milwaukee may take some spill from there. But Dallas, there's been this discussion about TKI, which I think is the airport code they would use for like McKinney, which I believe personally would be, well, I don't know. Could it be like Payne Field in the sense that it's boom or bust? Could it be like the other airlines that have been trying to make their way into Dallas Left Field and haven't been able to succeed there uh, against Southwest? And 
are, you know, the dirty politics of Dallas going to come out? You know, you talk about dirty politics of the bigger cities, like they definitely exist in Chicago and New York and in L.A. and San Fran and Washington. And now in the Dallas version, you're going to see these two 600 pound, 800 pound gorillas, whatever you want to call them, that are not going to want that disruption, even if it comes from the likes of a breeze or a novella. Yeah. It's, it's very, very hard to develop new airports or open new airports just because of, you know, pol- if you want to call politics or whatever, just neighborhood opposition and, um, you know, just, just building anything. And this is one, definitely one takeaways from, from American places uh, in my book is, is that uh, it is, if you look at the, at the U.S. economy, uh, it's not that the U.S. economy doesn't produce a lot of innovative new things. It's just usually things we can't see, like invisible algorithms. You know, they're genius software. There's not a lot of, you know, we say like atoms or bits, not atoms, you know, not, uh, you know, the Dreamliner wasn't evolution. It wasn't revolution. The, uh, you know, we're not building these grand new amazing airports that look a whole lot different from the old airports. There's, there's not, um, you don't, you don't see the innovation uh, in big physical infrastructure in the U.S. so much. I mean, there might be an example here and there. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is, as you mentioned, you know, politics or neighborhood opposition, whatever you call it, just it's hard to build things uh, in the United States for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, which isn't to say that, you know, I, I'm drifting off into something that be beyond aviation here, but um, the United States happens to be experiencing an incredible manufacturing, uh, I don't say manufacturing boom, because it's not that the manufacturing output is up, but the construction of manufacturing facilities is through the roof. And some of that is politics, you know, uh, federal subsidies is supporting that right now. But, and I see that on the railroad side as well, because I do a rail, railroad newsletter um, and they, you know, the railroads are carrying that sort of freight, you know, construction materials and stuff like that. So going off a little bit on a tangent here, but just to your original point about new airports, it's 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 not that likely. And if you do see a new one, they're usually pretty niche. You know, they're usually small, uh, you know, kind of on the margin type type uh, airports. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I mean yeah, you know, Salt Lake was was recently reconstructed, so there there are projects, but um, yeah, yeah, it was really just a replacement of you know the old the old building. So, well, I think it's a really good point because NIMBYism. It's it's fascinating the, the the differences and so like you know the, kind of the, the two places that I've spent the most time in my adult life are Boston and Chicago uh, sorry and, and DFW um, and you know Chicago was more when I was in college um, but if you c- compare Boston and DFW the differences in like they're they're night and day when it comes to NIMBYism in 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 DFW um, you built out you built up you built sideways um, you know there's probably there's more warehouse capacity being built in the DFW area, for example, than I think exists in, in like the last, like say five years than exists in the Boston area. And and that's nimbyism. That is things like environmental review. That's things like local neighborhood control. I think you, you've called out all these factors. You write about a lot of it in, in the book, uh, which is very good, by the way. I haven't said that to you yet, um, but I really appreciated it. Um, and I think the, um, there's, it, it's sort of a, and we, we, we've talked about this before in the context of the U.S. We've talked about this before in the context of, of Amsterdam a lot because it's it's going through its own sort of version of this. But there's a there's a very um, 
very counterproductive mindset that has beset a lot of our most economically productive um, cities and metro areas. And, you know, this is expensive for them specifically, but it's also expensive for the U.S. as a whole. And you can, you know, tell that story at the at the level of the airline industry, but you can also tell it at the, at the level of our national economy. I think there was a paper, it's, it's a few years old now, right? But that said that, that something like $3 trillion, you know, 10, 15% of GDP that we lose every year because of how expensive it is to build housing in our most productive metro areas, right? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I like, um, you know, I, I think I think ironically enough, to some extent, um, as it relates to new airports in the Dallas area, NIMBYism and sort of the cronyism of the right amendment or the, the post the right amendment repeal are why you don't see, for example, Fort Worth Airport becoming more of a player. Um, it's a reason why you you don't see more competition at Love Field. Yeah. Get ready to embark on an accelerating journey with the March 2024 issue of Airways Magazine. In this edition, join Joshua Chupeski as he takes us through the remarkable transformation of Denver International Airport, from its rocky beginnings to becoming the third busiest airport in the world. Discover how this airport is renovating and expanding for an even brighter future. Enrique Perella invites us to experience something truly unique with the return of the Boeing factory tours. Get an up-close and personal look at the inner workings of one of the world's leading aircraft manufacturers. Stuart Marshall shines a spotlight on Seven Air, the airline that plays a vital role in connecting Portugal's picturesque landscapes by fulfilling the country's public service obligations. Explore how this airline keeps small cities connected with essential air travel. Simone Collini brings us an exclusive interview with Fly Device CEO, who unveils the airline's exciting plans to become an even bigger player in the Middle East air scene. Discover the vision and ambition driving Fly Dubai's future. Take a nostalgic trip back in time with David H. Stringer as he explores vintage airline timetables. These historical treasures offer a glimpse into the golden age of aviation, allowing you to feel the personality and charm of airlines from yesteryears. Don't miss David H. Stringer's incredible collection of several thousand historical timetables. As Airways history editor, he shares his passion for these colorful and innovative windows into aviation's past. Immerse yourself in the rich heritage of airlines and feel the nostalgia come alive. Get your copy of the March 2024 issue of Airways at your nearest Barnes & Noble and at airwaysbag.com shop and indulge in these captivating stories that celebrate the wonder and evolution of the aviation industry. Now, a couple things. I mean, one one thing about you know comparing a place like Boston and Dallas. Remember, of course, Dallas, a place like Dallas is just going to have a lot more available cheap land. So that's a big big factor as well. Um, Boston, you know, the Northeast is just so crammed. It's uh, there's you know if you want to build a you know warehouses, just require a lot of a lot of land, a lot of property, and, and there's just not that much of it. Now, believe it or not, um, where I live in Jersey, there's actually there has been a lot of new warehouse. Sure. Yeah. Recently, just because of, you know, during COVID, there was that whole logistics boom. We have, 
we have a place uh, a little bit west of where I uh, where I live in in uh, eastern Pennsylvania. I like to call it the uh, the Inland Empire East. So the Inland Empire is 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 the is the big metro, pretty giant actually metro area, um, just to the east of Los Angeles, and their big industry is warehouses. I mean, just logistics. So all everything you buy at a Walmart is produced in China, comes over by ship into the port of Los Angeles or the, or the neighboring port of Long Beach. It gets put on a train, usually gets sorted out in Long Beach or stored at a warehouse in Long Beach, Puts on an, get a, put on another train in Chicago and then distributed from there all over the country to you know, different Walmarts and Targets and things like that. So that um, so even in California, California is not you know the last place that's going to be famous for, for building and, and, and uh, you know, easy places to build new things. But even in a place like the Inland Empire, um, near Los Angeles, you saw a lot of new warehouse capacity. They're actually be, one of the railroads is actually building a, a billion dollar, uh, just massive logistics park in, uh, in in the in California now, just just out even further um, east of the Inland Empire over the mountains. Uh, so it does, you know, it does happen. But um, but yeah, it, it, it depends, you know, a lot on availability. No, 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 for for sure. But 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 my, my take on this was always, you know. I, I lived in Somerville, Cambridge, and Metro, right? Those are kind of the, the places that I lived in the Boston area when I was there. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying you have to re- recreate Manhattan, though, like, for my personal aesthetic tastes and so on and so forth, like, I would have loved that. But I'm not saying you have to recreate Manhattan, right? But why are there single-family homes on some of the most valuable and productive and innovative spots? Um, or, like, you know, th- that's that's probably one of the most innovative, you know, zip codes uh, within, in the U.S., right, in terms of... The amount of human capital um, and the amount of 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 existing sort of um, innovation that happens there, and you could three or four x that by getting to like Barcelona's density, right? Yeah. No, so no, and, I, and 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 that's that's yeah. kind of the, the, there's a there's a difference between like I'm not saying you have to you know put a hundred skyscrapers onto sort of you know on, on the banks of the Charles River or whatever, but there's there's no reason there should be single family homes in summer. Oh yeah, no, hundred percent. No, I, I think we're making two different points here. But your point about, uh, you know, housing—that's that's another can of worms. That's <laughs> housing in the U.S. We are experiencing a severe, severe shortage of housing in the United States, in my opinion. Um, and a lot of that has to do with yeah, just uh, being uh, the difficulties of building, and uh, you know, I think some of the things you refer to in a place like Boston. But it's yeah, it's it's that's that's a very very big problem. I mean, even to the extent that we have this huge homelessness crisis, and um, you know, now one of the things that you know, kind of I talk about a little bit in the book also is I call them the three H's. You know, it's like housing, healthcare, and the other one is higher education. So those three sectors alone just employ massive amounts of people, and they're just hugely important economically, but they're not very, they're not very, they haven't been able to, uh, to get a lot of new efficiencies out of those industries. So if you think of like the classic example, like the Moore, Moore's law in, in technology, where they've been able to just over, you know, year after year after year, the, the, the little chips get, you know, cheaper and better, cheaper and better, cheaper and better, cheaper and better. And then you get, you know, these awesome phones and these awesome, they just, everything just keeps getting better and better. Now you got these, you know, vision pro things and I don't know, I haven't tried it, but um, but, but, but with housing, it's just, there's, there's, there's no economies of scale. There's no, that there, there hasn't, that we basically build houses the same way today as we did 
20, 30, 40 years ago has been roughly the same. Um, and, you know, still as labor, there, there's been no really new radical technologies to make building housing cheaper. And yeah, same thing with healthcare and education. Um, so yeah, those uh, are, and that's unfortunate, you know, and that's why I think we have a shortage of, of some of those things and, you know, housing especially. For sure. Hopefully I mean, someone will come along, you know, there's always ideas out there, you know, maybe we'll be able to like 3D print houses and <laughs> interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting ideas. There's actually a company, Warren Buffett actually had a stake in a company that was 3D printing houses. I just think at this point, um, and they actually, you can buy a 3D printed house in Texas, actually. I think they're in Austin. There's a company that sells them, but I um, I just think they're not done at the scale where, you know, they can really make a lot of money or save a lot of money doing it. But it's always yeah. good to see. You know, well, I, I think the story is is different across all those three industries, though, right? Like, so in in higher ed, um, right, the fundamental uh, thing that you run into is the fact that um, a lot of the economic value that higher ed sells is that it's a credential. And I, we're getting very far afield from an aviation yeah. podcast, but I will, I will, I promise at the end of this little, this mini news <laughs> catalog, I will we'll bring, bring it, it back to aviation. Yeah. Uh, but so in higher ed, it's, it's about credentials, right? And so fundamentally, right. Um, like that, like there's a, there's a credential story there. And then there's also a, the basket of, of goods that com comprise a college education or a college experience is very different today than it was in 1970. Right. So, um, so I think in, in higher ed, you're 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 seeing in part, um, uh, you know, you're you're seeing, I, I like you you could not make technology like te technology can't make, a, 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 a like the experience of a dorm as a luxury hotel any any cheaper like that's just like fundamentally impossible like the, the the college degree has expanded right in healthcare I think you're seeing sort of a combination of a variety of factors but. There's a sort of regu regulatory piece to that puzzle, both in terms of regulatory complexity, in terms of restrictions on the number of doctors. Um, so, but like, but like, healthcare has a different set of challenges. And then I think with housing, like a lot of the story is truthfully like zoning policy and 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 nimbyism. Not to bring that back, but when you kind of aggregate all of these things, the reason this ties to the airline industry is if you look at the the markets that have grown. Right. Places like Nashville, places like Dallas, uh, places like Austin. Part of what is driving these markets up, right, in terms of in terms of their air, their air travel demand, in terms of population, in terms of economic growth is, yeah, they're, they're, they, they were naturally going to grow because the U.S. economy as a whole has grown. But they've grown disproportionately because these three factors that you called out, housing, health care um, and higher education have become disproportionately expensive have become sort of have have largely priced out the middle class in places like Boston, Chicago, New York, um, San Francisco, L.A., right? Um, mm -hmm. and like, you know, and I'll cite an example from higher ed. Like if you go to the state university Rutgers in, in your home state of New Jersey, which was also my home state when I was you know growing up, that a Rutgers degree, a residential Rutgers degree is more expensive than a full tuition degree at m most private colleges in Texas or in Alabama. And that's, that's the public in-state university. You're paying in-state tuition. Um, and so uh, that, that, that has a, lo a lot to do with the cost of housing, but it also has a lot to do with um, sort of policy choices that are made in some of these states. And, and that explains why DFW is an ascendant market 
um, and New York is a stagnant market. That explains why, um, uh, you know, uh, Charlotte is an ascendant market and SFO is a is a stagnant, right? Like th- there is a tie. This, this all fits together in, in some ways. So I want to add maybe something that I've also thought about in to kind of yes and all of these points both of you are making. Um, set, uh, yeah, I haven't read your book yet. Is it on Audible or not? Oh, it is not on Audible. We have the oh. PDF or the uh, sorry, the uh, Kindle version. That's cool. So I'll, I'll I'll do that, and of course, you know, report back to you after I read it, and uh, um, you know, follow up on this point. Um, agreed on the three H's, and I thought about maybe two others. One being income inequality, which is maybe related in there somewhere, and then also climate change. And how that can play into a lot of these, as the name was saying, stagnant versus not markets, you know, climate change. We're seeing just almost every week in the airlines, like there's some sort of weather disaster, some sort of weather effect. It could be that when I was younger, there just wasn't that much of a news inundation where you would find out about travel disruptions from weather, from adverse weather. But we're seeing adverse weather conditions happening and we're, we're being told that, you know, things like in the Atlantic, for example, currents are changing such that, you know, with the sea levels rising, this could be not good for certain countries in terms of uh, warmth or cool air coming through. And then when it comes to the income inequality piece, I think we, we have to talk about AI, we have to talk about machine learning and deep learning and all these methodologies that are either going to help save society and, you know, as you mentioned, like the 3D printing building an airport kind of thing, but where places like San Francisco, they, uh, I read an article in The Economist uh, last night, I read The Economist last night that said San Francisco has kind of turned a corner because now all these AI people, you know, with AI skills and AI connectivity are coming into the city and, and meeting together and all that. However, there's still a massive homeless problem and crisis on a lot of these West Coast cities. And there's a lot of insecurity with them. And uh, we, we do have a lot of new migrants that have come into the United States over the past couple of months. And, and you know, those individuals need to be you know, housed and provided education opportunities, provided work opportunities, access to health care, access to child care. And so these things are, 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 are looming. And there is a connection to the airline industry with all of this. You can't 3D print better zoning laws, though, right? So like right. as much as, as, no. as SF is like maybe getting back to, getting out of a like a local minimum right um in terms of its fortunes until it deals with some of those fundamental sort of challenges right until it fundamentally builds more housing the trend line for sf is always going to be going to have some real challenges right um but no you you're you're absolutely right to call those out like i, I think um the story of local economies is is the story of like hundreds and hundreds of different um sort of factors and um, accidents of history and trend lines. But the problem is, is that as, you know, Detroit and Cleveland and um, now we're just describing either de-hubbed markets or soon to be de-hubbed markets. Um, this is my Detroit conspiracy theory. This is a complete sidebar. Um, but, um, you know, I think one one interesting question to, to, to sort of try desperately to drag this back to, to the airline industry is... Um, well, let's do something a little fun. We, we've been dark for a good 10 minutes here. Um, based on your book, based on kind of what you what you sort of 
found when you investigated all these local economies. If you had to predict the next three U.S. cities that would be most likely to get a hub that don't have one today, what would they be and why? Wow, that's a tough one. Well, I, I guess I should I should preface my answer by saying that uh, the air the U.S. airline industry has grown very slowly over the past 10, 15 years. Uh, steadily, you can say, but slowly. And part of that is because of consolidation. Part, part of that is, is simply by choice. I mean, I think pre-consolidation, you know, when you used to have six big airlines and a whole bunch of LCCs competing against each other, there was, uh, you know, there was just so much more capacity out there. Uh, I think nowadays it's, you know, airline management teams are just more, more conservative in terms of their, their growth. When they do grow, they tend to grow with higher gauge. United is a good example of that, where they're not necessarily adding a ton of new shells, you know, two new planes, but they're, they're adding a lot of ASMs in terms of, you know, just, just by making the aircraft bigger. So I, it's hard to, hard to think that, you know, the airlines that do the traditional sort of hub and spooking, the Americans and Delta's United, they're just not going to open. I mean, barring any major changes in, you know, the industry, they're, they're really not going to open an, another hub. However, if you, if you consider, uh, you know, uh, Southwest is St. Louis a hub for is Chicago, a hub for Southwest. I mean, it's kind of. I, I would say that Chicago is a hub for Southwest. I would say that St. Louis is a hub for Southwest, but something like Sacramento isn't. That like it's Southwest not, yeah. has hubs, yeah, right, so. right. And Sacramento is you know not really going to have the geography for it, um, especially you know San Francisco can you know you have some coastal hubs because whatever they can get away with it because they have a lot of international and and uh, but but the hubs tend to be. But I, I suppose you can say. I mean, again, I'm running into places that Southwest already is large in, but you know, you mentioned Nashville before. I mean, Nashville at one time was an American hub and it wasn't quite big enough then. It might be big enough now, though I'm not predicting that America would ever retry that just because Southwest is so strong there now. Like I think it would just be, you know, and also Nashville, it's not very international. So, you know, one one way to mitigate your pressures from Southwest is to go abroad, you know, to go, to go to Europe, to go to, can't really do that from Nashville, you know, maybe a London flight, but that's about it. Um, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm dancing around here. Very good question. I, <laughs> but I, but I, Vinay, I liked your question, but I, but I don't really see, um, any new hubs opening. I mean, you can go down the list. If you, if you just have a list and I can probably open one up on my computer here, either, but, um, you know, what are the most populous places in the U.S.? I mean, we've already talked about the the first couple, right? I mean, New York, number one, that's kind of already hard. L.A., number two, Dallas, number, or sorry, Chicago, number three, Dallas, number four, Houston, number five. Then you've got, you know, kind of like the Philly area, Washington area, kind of grouped together. As a, as San Francisco, if you include, you know, it depends on what you include, um, if you include San Jose and all that. But if you kind of go down the list, it's, it's kind of all hubbed until you get to like 14, 15, 16. I wonder what the largest, the most populous American city without a hub is it, is it, um, trying to think. So if what, you count, if you count the Inland Empire as part of LA, which I would for the purposes of. Let's the, count that as LA. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, <clears throat> depending on your definition, uh, you get to Tampa. Ah, okay. Another big Southwest city. 
San Diego is, I, I would argue it's a Southwest hub for all intents and purposes. Um, Baltimore, you again, I'm going to argue it's a Southwest hub. Um, yep. St. Louis, Columbus. Well, you, you really get, you get from, from a population, if you sort of take the, the intersection of population and economy, right? Like, um, really, it's Tampa, Austin, Pittsburgh, Vegas, and Nashville, right? Like, that's those, those are, and Vegas really is the Southwest Hub, so I'll even strip, strip Vegas out there. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like Austin, Pittsburgh, Tampa, Nashville, and then it's all the D Hub spots, Cincinnati. Cleveland, Kansas City, you know, take your pick. Yes, and I pulled up the list in front of me also. How about San Antonio? That's, I say, number 24. Could that ever be a hub for us? So the, the, the problem with San Antonio is the, GD, the, the GDP per capita is low, right? Yeah, so so really when we say the word hub, we, we, what we really mean is that, like, one of the big three U.S. carriers, Southwest, JetBlue, or Alaska, or I guess Hawaiian, but what you know, set them set them aside, right? Like we're saying that one of those carriers is going to establish a um, an operation that is oriented towards connections, right? That's what we mean when we say hub. Right. That's distinct from like what Delta still does in Cincinnati, which is like a point to point sort of focus right. city kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. um so you managed to. Also, there's so much Texas. I mean, you have competition from Houston and Dallas. Is, right. Texas right. is already, it's, it's got enough hubs. Yeah. Yeah. Austin's becoming, I mean, you could, again, you were, we're playing, it's a little bit of a semantic ink because we're playing with, you know, what exactly is a hub. But um, you could argue that Austin is, you know, has been sort of evolving into something that looks like a hub because, you know, American is pretty big there. Southwest is certainly big there. Other airlines have kind of, kind of jumped in. I think even Delta is trying to play, play some games there. So. Yeah. You know, maybe a place like Austin. I mean, Austin definitely has the the growth rate. Uh, the raw, you know, the actual population size. Where I have it in front of me. What is it number? What what number is Austin on the list? Pretty far down there, I think. It, it's like twenty seven, but Austin has a pretty affluent population and a pretty young for sure. population. Yeah, for sure, and which is like which work in favor. Yeah. Yes, and um, it has a lot of remember too. It has a lot of companies. Yep. that travel a lot. corporate yeah. environment like, yeah, yeah, yeah a lot of tech companies you know that do a lot of travel so yeah Austin's fantastic. And, and it has a lot of international demand for its size right like for yep. its population size it has a ton of inter- of and, and relatively premium because of the corporate segment um yep yep the thing no, the thing with austin that's tricky and i and i'm an austin partisan right like i i spent a good chunk of my childhood in austin um i still okay. love the city whatever um the, thing, the, the two problems that Austin has are, one, the huge Southwest population that has traditionally been very strong. Um, and so there's a lot of brand loyalty to Southwest in Austin because Southwest was big in Austin before Austin was big, right? Like if you kind of sort of do that in your head. Um, two, a lot of the traditional corporate travel is American-centric. Um, um, that's where a lot of the corporate contracts, especially with some of the historical companies that have a big presence in Austin, like Dell, um, that's um, they're, they're American contracts. And so- the problem you run into there is that American can never only ever make Austin so big because DFW is right up the road. But American is where a lot of those traditional corporate contracts sit. So you've got to win those away. Um, and then three, they don't have enough gates. And that's really the biggest thing, right? Like I, I like if if Austin had, you know, if you, if you could plop Pittsburgh's terminal in Austin, I think Delta would hub it tomorrow because it's it's the exact kind of market that Delta wants to be in. Right. Affluent, premium, growing, whatever. Take your pick. Um Delta has a hole in its market, in its network in Texas and in the sort of southern mid-continent region. 
Um, Austin's geography is not as good as DFW's, but it's not as bad as Houston's for those kinds of flows and, and, and traffic. So, but the problem in, in Austin is it doesn't have the gates and it doesn't have, and it has that Southwest presence. But I think Delta, truthfully, would probably bet on its ability over time to win out over Southwest with the kind of market that Austin is being. It just doesn't have the gate space to really. It's interesting. Yeah. And, and I think Delta has shown its interest by, by growing there a lot. Is there, um, I, I'm not aware, are there any uh, plans underway to grow the airport or? Yeah, so there's a there's a mid there's a midfield concourse that they're building out in 2026, but there's kind of a chicken and egg problem there, right? Which is like I think Austin would gladly build out a full fledged sort of connecting complex terminal if Delta was willing to commit to building a hub there, but I don't know that Delta is willing to commit to building a hub till it sees more results in Austin, um, which it can't do because there's not enough gate. Like there's there's actually a, like a, a circular like problem there almost. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would the be other one I mean, that's interesting to me, and and I think um, there there was a news story that that popped on this maybe a, a couple weeks ago, is the notion of would would United ever build a hub in the southeast? And um, my answer, my like sort of gut immediate reaction was no, it's not really a United market, um, except for Miami, which is already kind of controlled by American. Um, but if you, and again, this is speculative. Jay, you're someone who deals in hard facts, logic, whatever. When when Rohan and I are on the podcast, we're all about the speculation and all about the fun. So take this with a grain of salt that it that it, it deserves to come with. But like, if you play the hypothetical of Spirit goes out of business or merges with Frontier, you know, take your pick, right? But but is is a very different carrier, you know, twelve months from now than it was um, earlier. And JetBlue, especially with Icon kind of buying some shares, um, pulls back from Fort Lauderdale. Could United do something in Fort Lauderdale? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's like the most likely thing in the world, but the South Florida, again, another one is growing markets and a lot of that growth is happening north, like like northward within that metro area. Um, it's all interesting to think about. Yeah, no, obviously, yeah. you know, Florida is a, Florida's a hornet's nest of low cost carriers and, you know, maybe spirit is gone today, but someone else comes tomorrow. So I, I, you know, I, I, I would be surprised if a carrier like United would want to throw too but, many of its assets down there. But, um, especially since it's not really, um, you don't get any hub synergies down there. I mean, it's a, it's a, FLL is interesting because it's gate constrained, which means that in theory, and again, this is all like hypothetical, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like 18 different things that would have to happen for this state of the world to come to play. But like hypothetically, if you could snap your fingers and say, we now control 65% of the gates at FLL, um, right? 70% of the gates at FLL. It's not that easy to, for them to add more because if you actually look at a map of FLL, it's sort of hemmed in by development on all sides. Um, it's a area that's growing in affluence. It's a region that has plenty of international demand, which means that you can sort of connect. Um, now, it doesn't do anything to solve for American, sorry, solve United's like interest southeast problem. Um, but hypothetically, right, you could, you know, meaningfully do some connecting work to Orlando and Tampa, which American does, right? Um, it's great for the Caribbean. It's great for um, sort of that premium leisure segment. Um, and I think that the thing that would, would maybe make it work for a United is that, um, if you combine the fact that there's good international demand and premium international demand, frankly, um, if you could use sort of a layer on the fact that you could you could in theory use gate allocation to blo- block out other carriers, 
the problem with this whole, this whole like scenario that I'm spinning is that you know, today Southwest, sorry, JetBlue and Spirit are there, but Southwest has really pulled back in the market. So in a world where Spirit sort of goes belly up and JetBlue pulls back hard, you theoretically could snap up enough of the gates that you lock out that next LCC that comes in. Yeah, that's and then, interesting. I mean, I think under the right, you know, there's there are scenarios yeah. where that could work. Yeah. I mean, of course, if you, uh, you know, like they say, if the price is right for anything, if, uh, yeah, if they get, if they can get in there at a very low cost and, and can, you know, find right. themselves in a situation where their uh, competition would be limited because of, as you said, infrastructure constraints, then, uh, yeah, I mean, that's perfectly, you know, possible, very, very hypothetical. I mean, I think it's important to say that, but, but, uh, sure. Sure. Why? Why not? I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I think I, I think you know, in both these cases, I'm not saying it is like the it's like a likely outcome or better than fifty percent probability. But mm. under the right set of conditions, you could see these things. These yeah. Things happen. Yeah. I think in general, I think it's important to say this too. Uh, is that I, I think in general the you know the big three, particularly Delta, and you know maybe this is less true of American because some of the things we were talking about earlier with Chicago, certainly United and Delta. I think they're pretty happy with their networks. Uh, I think they like their hubs. They like their international footprints. Uh, they like their alliances, you know, their joint ventures. The, you know, Delta would love to have a probably joint venture partner in Japan, but they have one in Korea. It's probably good enough. Um, there's, you know, you can argue this here. United probably would like to have a partner in London, Heathrow. So there's there's always, you know, white spots, so to speak. But, uh, but I think they're generally... Uh, post, you know, consolidation over the past 10, 15 years, I think, mm -hmm. I think they're generally, they're not really looking for growth. They're not looking for new real estate per se. They're looking for new ways to, you know, they're always looking for ways to control their costs and they're looking for ways to, you know, price more effectively to, uh, you know, to make smarter fleet decisions like United is doing with their upgaging which is a whole, you know, I'll have to do another podcast on that. That's a whole interesting topic too. Uh, United's, United, the United Next strategy, does that make sense or not? Very, very, very. Well, uh, Jay, you just, you, you just invited yourself back on the Airways podcast. Like, I don't, I don't know if you, <laughs> well, you, you, you should have said that, but. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, I'm always ready to come on with you guys. This is, this is, this is a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, but um, yeah, there's, there's never shortage of stuff to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm just looking forward to the fact that I'll be able to try the Bluetooth on their flight someday. Well, while we're here, do we have any other topics we want to discuss before we wrap up for this episode? Uh, well, I think, you know, we've shattered it out enough on um, on uh, the podcast that we should at least give Jay's old book that he wrote in conjunction with with Seth Kaplan, um, deep, sort of a deep dive into Delta's um, modern history and uh, more importantly its resurgence in that sort of post-recession period after it merged with northwest airlines um cu curious maybe to to hear from your perspective jay what it was like writing that book how you managed to sort of um get the level of um behind the scenes insight and access that you that you did there and um and and, and and also curious, uh, in the years since that book was written, we obviously went through a pandemic and Delta has, has come out the other side, in some ways the same airline, but in some ways a very different airline. Um, so yeah, just, just curious to hear, maybe hear you reflect a little bit on the process of writing that book and then also um, on what you think, if anything, has changed at Delta since you wrote the book. 
Yeah, yeah, good question. So I, I uh, yeah, I, if I recall correctly, this, um, you know, going back now, I think it was 2010 when Seth and I decided to do this. And then I, I, I believe it was Seth who came up with the idea. I, I remember I wanted to write a book and I was, I was thinking, you know, what, what, what will be the topic? And I, and I think Seth was the one uh, who said, you'll have to have him on the podcast as well one time because he's got, I'm sure, some, some great stories to tell about this. But uh, he, um, yeah, I think he was like, well, Delta's, Delta's story is just so fascinating. I mean, they were this like, you know, extremely uh, revered airline in the South. You know, they made money when the whole industry was losing money year after year after year. And then suddenly they just, you know, ran into all this trouble after deregulation. And, uh, you know, they, uh, then after 9-11, there was a whole saga. So, yeah, we just agreed this is just like would make a fascinating topic for a book. Uh, and, um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, just, just doing Airline Weekly, uh, we were, you know, constantly, we were constantly doing the play-by-play. I mean, we were, it, it was like being, you know, we had, we had front seats to the, to the game as it was unfolding. So we were watching it. Um, and then just to get uh, more of the, you know, kind of the background, the insider scoop, so to speak, uh, we, we did conduct a lot of interviews uh, with people that were both at Delta and, you know, former executives and competitors and, and things like that. We did a lot of that. Uh, and so, yeah, and then we just just all brought it together, it took several years um, and uh, we published it. Uh, was it 2016? I can't remember now, but it was, it's yeah, it's kind of, kind of getting a little old. Um, maybe maybe it's due for update. I, I thought about writing if not an update, maybe a you know new book about another airline. We'll see if I have that in. Maybe that's my retirement project, but uh, maybe one day. Um, so, but yeah, of course, you know things. There's been a whole. You asked what has changed since 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 then since that book was published, and the answer is you know a whole lot because you had COVID. Uh, but at the same time, you know Delta is very much, uh, you know, in the state. If you if you remember the state that Delta was in in 2016 2017. Um, that really hasn't changed all that much, uh, you know, even, no, even after sure. gone through COVID. They're still, you know, the most profitable of the big three, one of the most profitable airlines in the world. They're, you know, they're still, they're, I, I always said, you know, if you ask me, why is Delta so, what are their secret weapons? I would say, you know, number one, Atlanta. That's just the greatest hub on earth. And then, you know, a little bit more controversial, but I think the fact that they're not really unionized except for the pilots is helpful. And that's yeah. not any kind of dismar- disparagement of unions in any way. Unions play very constructive roles in, in a lot of ways in the airline industry. But in their case, it just allows them, you know, kind of affords them more labor flexibility and, and whatnot than, than, you know, some of their rivals. So that, that's probably helpful. Um, they could also, you know, I think one of the reasons why they're able to have an in-house, a vibrant in-house maintenance division that makes a lot of money, some of that is tied to their more flexible labor rules, things like that. So, you know, whole, whole lot of reasons. Um, In-house uh, IT, I think that that also plays a role too. Yeah, and and yeah. they've also been, they've been having Deltamatic, they've also just been very innovative. They've always been an innovative, disruptive company. And even Northwest, Northwest had some really fantastic, I mean, they and American Airlines and TWA and Delta were really, you know, back in the days of distribution evolution, were very prominent about launching these products that, you know, help their commercial operations really do some cool things. And uh, I think a lot of that talent, especially that tech talent, came from Northwest to Delta when they merged. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't don't forget the the magical ability to um, <clears throat> inflate the value of Sky Miles more than the high card Deutsche, <laughs> and then have Tom Brady become your you know ambassador. And and, and yet and yet not not impact um not impact you know joking aside not impact people's willingness to sign up for their credit card their Cobra credit card, which speaks to the 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 degree to which they have built a quality brand. Right. Yeah. People do yeah. like them. I mean, it is a great product. Yeah. They, they, yeah. their operations are very reliable. They're, you know, they fly to a lot of places where people want to go, which ultimately I like to say, you know, the airline business at the end of the day, it's a real estate business. And if you've, you know, if you've got your, if you got a hotel in Atlanta, <laughs> you're, uh, you're in good shape. Um, so they've got good real estate and, uh, they innovative on the fleet side too. You know, they've been able to, yeah. uh, partially because of their in-house maintenance um they've been able to you know more aggressively buy used airplanes and turn them into what customers think are new airplanes i mean they, they look like new uh but at the same time they've also uh you know they've got out and ordered uh you know new planes as well like they got the max well, that's i was actually going to call that out as like maybe the thing that has changed the most since your book you know setting aside like covid changed the in- industry as a whole and delta has responded to those things but maybe the biggest thing that has changed the most since your since the book, right across these eight years, is that they are no longer the like um, aggressive. They're they're no longer as aggressive about a sort of used depreciated fleet model, right? They are much more mixed in in their approach there. Um, yeah, and, and you could make an argument that United's uh, quote unquote turnaround, um, you know, uh, and the the fact that they have shrunk the gap with Delta is that they've learned a lot of the lessons that Delta taught them to some extent. I actually want to comment on that because I find that there's been several books that have been written about airline turnarounds. We have the earliest of which, you know, Gordon Bethune's From Worst to First about Continental in the mid-1990s. Then we had this book that came out, Glory Lost and Found. American Airlines had their own version with the Gary Kennedy publication of 12 Years of Turbulence, which I really loved. And yeah, and I did a I did a review on that a few years ago, and that really just um, kind of took on a different flavor in the sense that it turned uh, around. It talked about how American turned around uh, its uh, operations under Tom Horton, but when ultimately the U.S. Airways uh, deals behind the scene with you know Doug Parker and the unions kind of came about. That really sort of set the fate of the airline for that merger and how Jared RP, you know, was someone that was so anti-bankruptcy for so long. And then we had most recently, we had uh, Oscar Munoz's book, Turnaround Time. Yep. Yep. So no, there's, there's been a few of them and I haven't read that one. Is that a good one? The, uh, the Oscar's book? I just haven't had a chance, but. It is okay. It is less about Oscar um, from a commercial perspective and what United has done. I mean, I think that it's pretty undoubtable that his decision to bring Scott Kirby on to head up the uh, airline uh, resulted in a lot of the commercial talent uh, coming from American to United. And that talent had been at pre-merger American and pre-merger U.S. Airways. And uh, I think that a lot of the decisions that that team had made at American um, taught them a lot about, you know, some of the dynamics of a Chicago and of a New York and of an LA. And so that could help United and provide a real big advantage to them when they had these teams coming up there. And, you know, United has, uh, you know, a, a, just a kind of a different approach into planning. And Andrew Nacella 
has done some really fantastic things along with this commercial team in terms of allowing United to really capitalize on this network strengths. Because even when Oscar Munoz took over, before Scott Kirby joined the, the, the company, United was really sitting on a lot of untapped potential uh, in their network. Yeah. And I think that Oscar's book really was more about him from the soft skills part of, of United. But if we wanted to get into the to the weeds of things, uh, Jay, I think that would be another opportunity for you and 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 Seth and whoever else to write because there's there's some really really cool stuff that United could speak to, uh, at least from 2016 onwards in terms of what they've been able to do. Well, I I think the really interesting dynamic with with the United case, right, is that um, there was one part untapped potential in the network, and there was one part a sort of broken culture post merger in the Smizek era, right? Like and Oscar was probably was it's, it, se- it seems like again from the outside looking in right um, it seems like pretty instrumental in turning around the culture but it really took Scott Kirby joining to turn around the commercial operation right like United was you know um, let's say like thirty percent of the of the of the profitability of Delta when you know you know under Munoz but once Kirby came to play right now now they're 80, 90 percent in terms of financial returns right. Um, I also think the really interesting dynamic, again, the, you could write such a great book about like the 2016 to 2024 period in the in the U.S. airline industry and, you know, beyond whatever, just, you know, in part based on the observation that um, it really seems like Doug Parker and Scott Kirby learned different lessons from their time at U.S. Airways. Right. Doug Parker and, and you know, I would argue at least that Doug Parker learned, learned the wrong lessons while Scott Kirby learned the right lessons, right? Um, which is that, you know, at US Airways, what they did, right, was they um, really got really aggressive about cost. They got really aggressive about, um, like, basic network mechanics and operational reliability. Um, and what Doug took away from that is, like, that's actually what matters to run an airline. And what Scott took away from that is that that it is really critical to find product market fit. Um and that is like necessary but not sufficient to to run a premium airline, which is different than running what ULC what what um what uh, U.S. Airways was, which was more I would argue more of like a hybridized airline, right? Especially given their markets and the fact that they were not in places like Chicago and New York and and whatever. Um, and so Scott's model uh, or Scott's like philosophy translated better to a global, you know, tier one airline like United than Doug's sort of mental model did to American. So that's just my two cents on on that whole transition. Oh, no. Well, very interesting. And um, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Jay. Do let us know um, if you ever want to come back or if you ever want to bring a pal. We would love that. You know, Ned Russell or any of the other individuals you've worked with, we, we would greatly appreciate them. It helps our visibility and it also allows us to kind of flex our muscles in terms of what you know Vinay and Helwing and I have been studying all these years and this is a labor of love right it, ingesting the industry and the last question I wanted to kind of ask on that note um that we all were curious to know is that when you were writing Airline Weekly and I was a subscriber to that I was just so impressed by the level of uh breadth and depth and and the rich information nuggets that you and and Seth and Jay were able to include in those publications how are you able to do that each week, in and out, just be able to, you know, go to the mega levels of 
looking at the margins of Volaris all the way till uh, you know, North Atlantic to Air India and back. Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Oh, thanks for the kind words again. I uh, well, it's um, so a lot of what I a lot of what I even do today, uh, and you know, when I was first starting out, I did this at an intense level, you know, very seven days a week, you know, 15 hours a day kind of thing level. But I just, anytime an airline said anything and that's earnings calls, any kind of, uh, you know, financial disclosures, investor presentations, you know, whatever it was, I just made sure to listen and take notes. And, you know, remember I've been doing it for 20 years now. So some of it just, you know, you start, you just start to learn stuff and knowledge builds upon knowledge. Um, so a lot of it is just, it's, it's a lot of reading, it's a lot of listening and it's a lot of, you know, just, just write, writing about things that you, you discovered. Um, and there's just, yeah, there's just tons of, tons of information. Now I always, I happen to really love writing. I mean, I've always, you know, even when I was younger in school, I just always, one of the subjects I did, but I, I stink at math, but I was always, I was always pretty good writer. History and, and English, where was the two? Yeah. And I can't even say English because they, you know, my teachers would assign like Shakespeare and I'd be really bad because I'd get bored or whatever. But I, but, um, I was, I was always good. You know, if I got a writing project, I usually did well. So I was, so I was able to write and, uh, yeah, just, you know, it's always important to when you write and I don't need to be, uh, you know, try to give you writing lessons here, but, but, you know, just to, uh, speak, you know, talk conversationally, be, don't try to use big words, you know, Use short sentences where possible. If they're long sentences, there has they have to be justified. A lot of you know little tricks with transitions and metaphors and things like that, just to make the content more interesting and easy to digest. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's all that. I happen to just have been very lucky. You know, there's a couple of people. There's one person in particular that I worked with when I was at U.S. Airways, who's just an absolute genius. And this guy, he's like us, you know, he's, he, I, we talk for a half hour every day. We, this conversation we had today, guys, like I have this conversation with him every day and we just talk and talk and talk. And this guy just, you know, he's one of these people, like every five minutes, he'll put a new idea into your head kind of thing. So I've been very lucky to have friends like that. Um, yeah. And I just, I, I just read everything and get my hands on, I guess you can say. So, and then, yeah, I think it's important too, because aviation is very, uh, you know, the, the, the geopolitics involved and the, um, it's, it's important to know, you know, a little bit. I, I, I was fortunate. I did my graduate school uh, work in economics, international economics. So, you know, it's, it's, if I'm talking, if I'm writing about Thai airways, I, I can understand a little bit the context of the Thai economy. And I, I know that it's very tourism dependent. I know, you know, that it has, a certain relation with China. So a lot of Chinese tourists come to, you know, things like that is all good for context. So I think it all comes together, you know, and we used to say that, uh, you know, the, the key to, to, to writing airline weekly, I mean, the, the thing that we strove for is we kind of saw it as, you know, there's, there's information everywhere. I mean, now more than ever. And what airline weekly has always been is, you know, we try to synthesize the information kind of to make it a one-stop shop kind of thing, you know, so that you don't have to, you know, people used to tell us all the time, oh, why should I read Airline Weekly? There's so much stuff out there. I'm too busy. I can't. The whole idea is that if you are busy, you can just, you know, you just read read this one thing and, you know, maybe a few others, read, you know, read Airways Magazine, read a few things, and then that's all you need and you'll be good to go, you know? 
So that's a long answer to the question. But <laughs> yeah. And of course, we did, you know, we had Sirium was always kind to us. We got the data from them. And um, so, yeah, good schedule data. And, uh, we go to a lot of conferences too. That was very important for us. We get a lot of great information from conferences. We meet a lot of great people. So, yeah, combination of things. Well, excellent. Thank you again for joining us on episode six of season five of the Airways podcast, Jay Shabbat. Yeah, go go out and buy his books, both of them, folks. They're 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 worth a read. 